0: Yeah, that's it. Welcome. Oh, yeah. How are you doing? Good. Awesome. Excellent. Grab a seat. Nice jacket. Nice shirt. Mm hmm. Nice. I'm treating us like we're actually meeting in person. Remember? When that used to happen when you could actually physically be in the same room with your friends and, and you, you spent time together. Remember that? Man, that seems like it was. What year was that? 85? A- 80s. Hmm. I think Back to the Future was out, I think. I can't. Remember. Anyway, how are you? Sincerely, how are you doing? I want you to say it out loud. I'm going to ask you again, okay? Count to three. I'm going to ask you how you're doing. I want you to say it out loud. If you're with a group of people, I need you to to, to, to lose your inhibitions right now. And I need you to just talk into the device you're listening to this to. <laughs> listening to this to. That's not even a sense. Anyway. Uh, I'm going to ask you again, and I want you all collectively to say how you, how you're doing. All right, here we go. One, two, three. How are you doing? Wow. Okay. That was, uh, mixed across the board. A lot of people going through different stuff. Okay. Interesting. Um, I'm hoping you're all good. I hope you're safe and healthy and, and, uh, optimistic and hopeful. Lord knows It's been an interesting bunch of months, hasn't it? You've never experienced anything like this in your lifetime. And uh, we're getting through it. Slowly, we're getting through it. Um, I want to just address the last episode that uh, I put out called Black in Canada. And I want to thank, first of all, all my guests for being on that uh, episode. Aisha Brown, Kenny Robinson... Sterling Scott and uh, Arthur Simeon. Um, I just I want to just applaud their honesty and uh, their vulnerability by talking about their stories. And uh, just the feedback I've been getting from people <clears throat> has been amazing. and a lot of people saying they learned a lot from that conversation. and um, that obviously it's it's difficult to listen to and hear because you know racism is uh, is an ugly topic and it's uh, those stories are not pretty but i think that's how we learn about one another by hearing each other's stories so i'm just grateful to them for sharing those stories and i'm grateful to all of you for taking the time to listen to it <clears throat> excuse me and then um taking the time afterwards to kind of think about it and what you can do going forward and reaching out and trying to learn more and having discussions with people that you love and care about and uh, trying to figure out a, a positive way forward. So thank you to every single one of you who did that uh, means the world. Also got a shout out from just for laughs. Um, they uh, highlighted the podcast as well and their emails and stuff to people. And uh, again, all this is unexpected and something I didn't even know I was going to do up until a couple of weeks ago. I decided to try and try and get a collective wisdom if you if you will about the topic by talking to other comedians and as i said they all you know did not ha he- didn't hesitate and just jumped on board and uh i'm just grateful that it's been a bit of a jump off point for people and uh provided some perspective and and uh some day-to-day detail um about the black experience in canada right now and uh yeah so that's that um this week i thought long and hard about it and i'm like We've been in the throes and in the darkness for such a long time. And for me, one of the escapes I have uh, when times are rough is uh, comedy, obviously, and creating comedy or watching comedy. Um, music. I love listening to music, often when I'm writing comedy, actually, but just on my own, just kind of listening and getting lost in it. And sports is also a big escape for me. So I I miss it now more than ever because I would rely on it now during all these, with all these other tough conversations going on. And not that you want to bury your head in the sand, but I think sometimes you just need to step away from it for a while and have a release. And for me, sports is that release to get engaged in watching and cheering on my favorite teams and those things. So um, that relates to this episode because my guest this week is the one and only Brian Burke. So Brian um, was involved with the Toronto Maple Leafs organization, obviously, uh, for many years, the Vancouver Canucks as well, Anaheim Ducks, and uh, was with the Calgary Flames organization as well. And he's held different different roles uh, amongst these these different organizations. Um, and I've got to do Brian's fundraiser, Target for Kids, um, maybe the last three years. This year it won't be going ahead, obviously, with, uh, with the pandemic, but... Um, one thing that I don't know if people know enough about Brian Burke is he's one of the most generous people I've ever had the pleasure to be around. Um, he can come across as uh, you know pretty gruff and uh, stern, but every single city he's been involved been involved in, he's got involved in giving back to that community and heavily involved in charity. It's a trademark of all the teams that he's been involved in. And uh, we get into that in this uh, in this chat, and uh, it's a shorter conversation. Brian's a busy man, so I had him for about 20, 21 minutes, um, and uh, I was just grateful for that because, as I said, he's a he's a busy guy working, doing sports hits and stuff, and uh, he stepped into the the uh, the uh, broadcasting world now and doing a great job with that. And uh, we talk a little bit too about um, what it's like to be in management and what that looks like because they don't often hear about that experience. You know, we hear about players and their stories and coming up through and development. But I've always been curious about what it's like to be in the management side of hockey and what that mindset's like and what that looks like. So we get into that a little bit. Um, also, I had reached out to some of you on social media uh, a few weeks back and asked for some of your questions to, to ask Brian. So I asked a couple of those. Um, one of them was about, uh, you know, the Newfoundlanders that he has, uh, worked with before the players that he's had in his organizations that are from Newfoundland and Labrador. And, uh, he gives me, um, a little snapshot of, uh, of three of those guys. So, uh, I think you'll find that rather interesting as well. And, uh, and, uh, it was, it was quite enjoyable. I really like talking to Brian. Um, I've always had a lot of time for him and a lot of respect for him and, um, I think you guys will enjoy this one too it's uh it's a good conversation and a good little break i think from from what we've kind of been involved in over the last uh number of weeks and number of months anyway i hope you're well uh sit back or keep walking or jogging or cooking or i don't know what you're doing right now but uh keep doing that and enjoy my conversation with brian burke Joined by Brian Burke. Uh, first things first, Brian, how are you? How's the family?
1: It's good, thanks. Staying safe and observing the rules. Yeah, that's all we can do at this
0: moment. Uh, how happy are you right now with the announcement brought by uh, Gary Bettman yesterday?
1: What are your thoughts on that going forward? Well, I think it's amazing. There's still a lot of hurdles. And we're you know clearly not close to dropping the puck, but I think it's a sound plan. There are a lot of things that could derail it from a health standpoint, but I think it's a sound plan. I think the league has been very thorough putting it together. And I think we'll get some great hockey out of it if we're allowed to play. If you're a general manager
0: or an owner right now, what is your main concern going forward? Is, is it the health of the players? Is it rushing into this thing too quickly? Is it just a public safety COVID type thing? What you, where is your head at right now if you're an owner or a GM?
1: Well, I don't think it matters whether you're an owner, a GM, a player. Uh, number one is I'm not worried about the safety of the fans because there will not be any fans involved. So if we can in, limit the interaction of the players with the public, theres there shouldn't be any public risk per se. I'm worried about the health and safety of the players and their families. Um, I'm worried about how some of the states south of the border have been behaving the last three or four days that when the reopening has begun, they haven't been disciplined at all, and that we're going to see a second spike. Um, we're already seeing it. So I worry a lot. Mainly the whole my whole objection to resuming play has been all about testing. I'm not sure the tests are accurate enough that we can tell athletes if they're safe or not, and I'm not sure we've done enough testing. But I think the science will catch up with us by the time we start playing games. Do you think –
0: Right now, everything goes out the window. So if you were on a hot streak when the season was going on, that's a wash. If you were in a slump while the season was going on, that's now a wash too. So does anyone have an advantage when this thing starts back up?
1: Well, I've heard a couple of theories. The, the team with the youngest – more young players will have an advantage because they'll bring them some life. Uh, I've heard a team with the most Swedish players because they haven't been in lockdown. They've been skating, actually, over in Sweden. Um, I think the best teams – they come into camp with the work boot mindset and go to work right away with the mindset that we're going to make this a successful season. That's going to dictate uh, who does it, you know, who has success. Now, with this play-in round, best of five, the goaltending position has become so central. Uh, it's so easy if you can, you know, if you're the worst team of the two teams, if you're not the better, and you can steal game one with great goaltending, now all of a sudden it's a coin toss. The rest of the series, so uh, I think goaltending will be a, uh, a pivotal point, and but I think we'll see some great hockey right out of the gate too.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, like I said, I hope it happens. Um, I would take anything at this point. I would take bubble hockey on television right now. If uh, I just need, I need some option of uh, of entertainment, so I'll take. It I've been that.
1: watching. I've been watching Bundesliga. Oh yeah, I, I would. I would have bet you five thousand dollars. That you would never catch me watching professional soccer on television. And I'm watching like an idiot now. I can't stand soccer, but we're all just starving for live sporting events. I watch some of that. I don't golf. I don't like golf. I watched some of that silly match on, on Sunday or Monday, whatever day it was. Um no, it's I can't wait for hockey to get back on. I'm watching these these retro games, you know, these these uh games that we were that we're showing a lot from playoffs, famous playoffs in ninety four and and uh, I watched for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, but I can't watch the whole game. I get too frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I know. You
0: realize, too, like how brutal it was. Like still, some amazing skills still, but just like you had to be able to take a punch and take a beating to survive in that league. And I look at guys like Darren Fleury or Cliff Ronning, and you go, the fact that those guys could survive in that day and age is amazing to me now looking back, watching those games.
1: Yeah, and, and people, you know, they talk about the no goalie era. Like, people say to me, I'm on the selection committee at the Hockey Hall of Fame, and they'll say, well, yeah, Gretzky got all those points, but he was in the no-goal era. And and the fact is, goaltending has improved greatly since that era. But I, then I say to well, them, do you realize what these players had to fight through to get a scoring chance? Like, it's amazing. You watch the 94 playoffs, Toronto and Vancouver, and guys are getting mugged, speared, punched, and no penalties. And then they call it late in the game, Dan Marowilli called a penalty. And Harry Neal just gave it to him. He said, that's a penalty. I mean, a guy, mugged the guy, grabbed him with both arms, grabbed him in the face and shoved him down in the ice. And he goes, that's a penalty, but you let 12 of those go, so you can't call that. And I'm like, is that really what we did? And it was.
0: Yeah, because I, I watched one of the games last night. It was uh, Canucks and Leafs. And uh, Marty Jelena sticks a knee out and sends Dave Ellett just spinning like it's a it's a knee thing and it's like there's no call no penalty and Dave Vellett doesn't say a word he just goes to the bench the other thing I noticed is after a goal there wasn't a lot of hoopla guys gathered real quick a couple head pats and then it was on there wasn't a whole lot of bang in the glass and all that stuff it's things you forget
1: now you know yeah and they didn't skate by the bench and high five everybody that started in junior hockey and now it's it's demanded in our buildings and uh they don't they didn't do any of that back then either. (laughs) All right. I want to get into
0: the process of management. Everyone talks about player development and uh, we've heard lots on that, but I always wonder about the development as a general manager because it's a high pressure situation, high pressure position, money's on the line, jobs are on the line. How do you develop the confidence to pull the trigger on deals or not doing a deal? What kind of, what do you have to surround yourself with in order to do that effectively?
1: Well, it's a great question. I had the I had the great fortune of learning at the knee of the late great Pat Quinn, and so you watched the master. Like you look at some of the trades Pat made, they were staggering, staggering. Some of the deals he made, and um, I got to watch him do it. And Pat was a Pat's. We called him the Python. Pat didn't hunt much. He didn't call GMs and offer trades. He kind of sat by the side of the trail and waited till the game came by him. Right, and so he would. You know, he would field the calls, So he always felt that if he fielded a call from a GM, he was in a better negotiating position than if he made one, which I never agreed with that. But I watched him do it, and he executed it beautifully. But basically it was, okay, let's get to a, a time frame, a reference point where we're talking about a potential deal. Because you spend a lot of time talking about deals that aren't going to happen. So you say, okay, we're going to get to the point where I would trade Smith for Jones. Now you turn to the staff around you. And you say, okay, yes or no. And in the meantime, you're doing as much research on the other players as you can. You know your own player. you got to research this guy. It's not just what he can do on the ice. You've already looked at all your reports, your pro scouting reports, your amateur reports. You know everything this guy's done as a hockey player. Now you got to find out if he's a good person. Has he ever been a captain? Like if he's an elite player coming up the ladder and never was a captain, big red flag. you got to talk to people that played with him or coached him. So we call it, like in Calgary, like a spider's web. We wanted points of contact, as many points of contact as we could get before we made a deal. We Maximum or minimum we tried for was eight. Optimal number was eight to ten. We tried to have eight. So a coach on our staff coached with an assistant coach who had this kid in the American Hockey League six years ago. Call him. Find out what kind of kid he is. Go back. If it's a young kid, sometimes we'll go back and talk to the billets where he lived. Talk to the junior coach he had. Talk to guys who play with them. Like you look at your roster, you might have a player playing in Portland or Stockton in the American League there was a the teammate of this guy. You call him. You do all your homework. And then the people around you say yes or no, and then you make the final call. So I think it's very collegial. Uh, I think it's a cooperative process. A guy that just does it on his own know-how is going to fail. I think it's the key is to collaborate, get as much information as you can, and then pull the trigger. Now, that being said, I've made some horrible trades. Whenever I, whenever I speak in public, people say, what's the worst trade you ever made? It's well, how much time do we have? So sometimes it works and you're a genius. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's not like buying a car. You're betting on a human being. And right. they can let you down lots of different ways. I hear you. Um,
0: one of the things I'm fascinated about is that whole human side of the game. And uh, I was at one of those uh, charity hot stoves that yourself and Eric Francis did here in Calgary a bunch of years ago. I think it was the first one at the Beltliner or whatever. And one of the questions I asked you about was, if you know you've got to trade a guy, what is your process? You're the GM. You've decided player X is going. Walk me through the steps of what that looks like now from you to that player. How does that work for you?
1: Well, sometimes when you trade a player, you really don't want to. So, like, when I traded Matt Stage to Calgary, I really didn't want to trade him. But Daryl Sutter said he had to be in the deal, and I wanted to get De'Anne up. So I decided, okay, I don't want to trade Matt Stage, in, but I, I have to. I have to put him in the deal. Same thing when I did the deal for the Sedine twins. I had to put in Brian McCabe, which I hated. I loved Brian McCabe. So sometimes you've got to put a guy in to get a player you want more. Uh, The situation you're talking about where you decide it's time for a player to go, usually there's visible outward signs. His performance falls off. He's uh, surly with the coach. uh, And you go talk to your coach every day after practice, and he's usually the first guy that says, look, you know, Joe, Joe Smith has given me a real hard time here. He's not sick. he's bringing us down because he's dogging it. his attitude sucks. Uh, I'd like you to see you, if you can get him out of here. and then you know then you put a lockdown on your staff, okay? so right away you say to your staff, no one says bad things about this player. Ever, anyone who asked you about him because those other teams do the same thing, they do their fact-finding. Anyone asked you about Joe Smith? he's the best kid we ever had, hardest worker we've ever had, and so on. So right away. You try and shield yourself against this intelligence gathering that's going to start once a team is thinking about them. And then you start shopping them and see what you can get. And uh, before it gets to that, I would usually sit down with a player and say, what's the matter? What's bugging? Like, you're a quality guy. You're playing terrible. What's bugging? See if I can repair it. Sometimes it's just me making him sit down with the coach and talking about things. Sometimes it's a team psychologist. Sometimes he's got trouble at home. And you got to help players through rough patches. If he's got trouble at home, you got to be patient with him. That happens to everybody. So it's a very complex thing, but I think there's a right way and a wrong way to do just about everything, including tra- trading a player, saying the right things to him when he leaves. Uh, I always thank my players publicly when they leave after I trade them. I say I want to thank this match staging for his service on behalf of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh Make them feel good as they're going to the airport instead of kicking them in the ass. One of the
0: stories you told that night, I don't know if you remember, was a story about, I think you were the assistant GM uh, under Pat, and uh, I think you had to trade one of the Sutters, and they, they were pretty emotional when they, when they got the uh, – Richie. Richie, yeah. So could you, could you tell the story real quick?
1: Yeah, we traded Harold Snaps and Richie Sutter to, uh, to uh, St. Louis, and Harold Snaps had been traded three or four times. He came in and he said to Pat, where am I going? And uh, Pat said St. Louis, and he said thanks. Trip Pat's hand shook my hand. And by the way, lesson: whenever we cut a player, or trade a player, or send a player down, there's always two of us in the room, because otherwise the player can say things were said that weren't said. So there's always two of us in the room when we cut a guy. Then Richie came in, and Pat said, "I just traded you to St. Louis." And Richie broke down. I had to go get a towel out of the coach's shower for him. He he just sobbed for like ten minutes, and then. He said, thanks, Pat, thanks, Berkey, and walked out. He was heartbroken. And Pat was white, white as a ghost. He said, I just traded a guy. I'm trying to get 20 more like him, and I just traded him. What was I thinking? Pat was visibly shaken up by the whole thing.
0: Yeah, not an easy business. I think that's something we forget as fans. You know, we scream at our television sets, and people are blowing guys up on social media, and you forget that these are human beings with, like, families and children and they get settled in a community or you know in a city and then they've got to up and leave and quite often the wives are left to deal with the aftermath of houses and all that stuff like it's there's a human element to this whole thing too right
1: yeah it's a great life these guys are paid well they fly on private jets i mean it's a great life but there is a very human side to it that people don't see there are injuries there are slumps there are personal problems and everyone thinks okay, so you're having a personal problem at home, but I paid good money for my ticket, and I expect you to perform at the same high level. It's not how human beings work. And trading guys is hard on them, and and it is usually the wife that does all the work. The, The guy, We trade a guy, and his new team wants him there that day. So he goes down to the dressing room, gets his gear, takes a couple dozen sticks, and goes right to the airport usually. Go home and say goodbye to his wife, and then right to the airport. So... Now, the team that takes them on, so say I trade uh, Matt Staves to Calgary. Calgary has to handle his move. So right, the teams all have people that come to you right away and say, okay, we're going to help you. So they go to, to his wife and say, okay, here's the moving company we use. Uh, we're going to fly you out for a home hunting trip. You can come out and look at homes and see a home game, meet the other wives, uh, and we'll help you. And then they find a house. But then she's got to, the mover's all set. But then she's got to get a realtor. She's got to turn off the hydro. She's got to turn it like, I've moved enough as a single guy. I can tell you it's a nightmare. The alarm company, the the gas, the electricity, the, you know, on and on and on. When I left Calgary, I forgot to turn off the alarm system. I got a bill for six months later on that I didn't turn it off. It charged me, ADT charged me 35 or 40 bucks a month for six months. I was not happy, but it was my fault. Right. Anyway, um it's a lot of work and a lot of detail, and especially your kids. You got to find schools for your kids. A lot of kids, a lot of hockey players, kids go to a public school, but a lot of them don't. And it's one thing you move into a new area, you go to a new school, but if you're in private school, you got to find a private school too. So again, first world problems, but it's a nightmare sometimes. And some people, they really love where they play. They get friends and neighbors that they know, and they fit right into in the community. Now all of a sudden, you huff.
0: Yeah, it's all wonky. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, sort of in a wobble there. But, uh, yeah, I'm amazed by that human element of it. Okay, so I know every single city that you've worked in, in terms of being with the team's organization, um, you've always insisted that the players be out in the community, that they be visible in the community and be involved in charity. Where did you get that mindset? When did that hit home for you?
1: Well, I was raised that way. My mom and dad, I'm one of 10 kids. And my mom and dad had us doing charity work at a very early age. And my mom was a nurse. They're both gone now. My mom was a nurse. Um, you can donate blood at the age of 16 in Minnesota, where I grew up, with a parental consent form. So we all started donating blood as soon as we turned 16. I, I'm, I haven't given in the last couple of years, but I've in the gallons and gallons since I started giving. In fact, one personal highlight was I went to give blood in Toronto one time, and they could not find a vein. And the nurse said to me, did you ever do drugs? I'm like, no. I give blood a lot. Right. And they took, it out, they took the blood out of a vein in my forearm, like on, the back of, like on the back of my forearm, like up here. Wow. So I took that as a great personal compliment that I had given blood so much that my major blood vessels were flat, or they couldn't find them anyway. So we had to do uh, – we did charity work very early on with our church and in the community, and it just stuck with me. And then when I got to pro hockey, when I played in the American League, even in the American League level, you see the impact you can have as an athlete. Um, and I realized this is this I have a platform now. People know who I am. So it's one thing, Brian Burke, the lawyer. I can write checks and I can go and, and fill boxes at a food bank, but I can't deliver a message if I'm just Brian Burke. But Brian Burke, general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, or president of hockey operations, Calgary Flames. Or president GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs, guess what? People see it on TV and they listen. So I've been able to turn a lot of things, make a difference in all the cities where I've lived, less so in Anaheim, frankly. Um, people didn't know who I was in Anaheim. But uh, the the Samueli family that owns a team does so much cherry work. We just I just got on and rode that wave. They're amazing. But to me, I say to my players, look, you've got to do more than other players. We'll ask you to do way more than most teams will. But for everything I ask you to do, I'll do three things. So it's not like I'm standing in the behind the curtain directing operations. I'm out there, too. We serve Thanksgiving dinner in Anaheim to a bunch of soldiers' families. Guess who's carving the turkey? Me. Right. So you walk the walk. Yeah, I
0: understand. Um, all right. So I, I put on social media that I was going to be talking to you today. So I got a, a couple of questions from people. And uh, I'm going to start with this one. So I'm originally from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, myself. So, of course, people were like, you have to ask him about the Newfoundlanders he's had in his organizations over the years. So, Harold Druken, what can you say?
1: Harold Druken was a great kid. He was a, uh, he was a lot of fun as a teammate. His teammates really liked Harold. Um, we played – I think it was Harold got me screeched. I might get it wrong, <laughs> but we got screeched one time when we were playing when there was an American League team in uh, – where were they in? Um, St. John's? John's. Yeah. And I think I, I got screeched there. I think it was Harold that set it up. But I kissed the cod. <laughs> the guy knighted me with the paddle, and he had the oilskins on, and I drank the screech. And Harold was a good player for us, too. He was a high pick. He was a good player for us and a, and a great kid. I, I think he's doing really well. I see him on social media once in a while. Great kid. Awesome. Um, how about Jason King? Jason King was a really good hockey player. Uh, he was quiet for a new kid. <laughs> the newfie kids, you know, they tend to be fall into one category or another. But uh, Kier, he was really a good player for us in the minors. A prolific goal scorer, uh, really conscientious player, worked very hard. Good practice habits. I can't say that about Harold. <laughs> That's it. Well, you can't. If you're doing screeching ceremonies, I mean, you only got so much time, right? I mean, you know, something's got to do. My favorite newfie I'm drawing a blank. We're getting old. Tough kid that played for me in Anaheim. He's from Deer Lake. Darren Langdon? Darren Langdon. Yeah, yeah. He's what from just outside my hometown. Yeah, what a great kid. I, I, I remember I put him on waivers and we lost him. And my teammates, my team was really mad at me. They oh, really? were really upset. Yeah, he, he was, Langdon was great. He was tough as nails and a great kid. I remember the guys were sour at me when I let him go. They were really mad at me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think he's got a restaurant now back in Deer Lake, just inside. Yeah, my hometown. So he's yeah, good, he's a
1: good guy. They're all good guys. Those three. But Newfoundlanders have a good reputation, and same the Maritimes, as a rule, have a good reputation for hockey. Is, it takes a little extra to get off the get off the rock, and uh, you know, or get out of Halifax and get out of PEI, and uh, those guys have a good reputation. And they're proud of themselves too. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, second question. There's I got this one, another one.
0: Second question is, while you were in Newfoundland, did you get a chance to fish there, or did you get a chance to go back and fish there at some point?
1: No, I've never fished in Newfoundland. I've, I've, uh, I've, gotten, I've been to a few bars in Newfoundland, <laughs> and I, I, I might have tried fishing in one or more of those bars, but uh, I have fished a lot off of PEI. Uh, I go fishing with DF enough, but uh, I have not fished there uh, someday. It'll happen someday. Yeah, for sure. You got to get there. All right, last one. Here we go. This one's going to
0: be about your days with the Canucks. Um, with the Canucks, the West Coast Express. Um, you had the the mattress line. Should that team, that era, should they have done more with that that lineup that they had in that roster?
1: Yeah, we we got to. A, it's funny. I was talking about this with Eddie Jovanowski the other day. We had a two two hundred point seasons and. We had really good, really classic Brian Burke team where we had good toughness, really good defense, uh, two lines. You know, we had top six boards. We had the West Coast Express and then the Twins. And uh, we should have done more. What failed us was the goaltending position. And that's not a knock on Danny Clucci. Danny Clucci was a really good player for us and a great kid. But he got hurt. Three years in a row he got hurt, like, in February, early March. And we go into the playoffs, and he was just coming off an injury, and we could not get out of the, get out of the division in the playoffs. The, our best chance was we were down to St. Louis one year 3-1 to one, and came back and beat them. And then we went up 3-1 on Minnesota, and they came back and beat us at home in game seven. I still remember the first goal of the game and how quiet the building got. So, yeah, that team should have done more. Whoever sent that question in is an astute observer. <laughs> For sure. Brian,
0: thanks so much for doing this. I know you've been busy uh, with everything going on and lots of uh, of hits to do. So I really, really appreciate this. Thanks a lot.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Yeah.
0: Cheers. There it is, Brian Burke. Uh, Yeah, Brian, straight shooter, man you know, gonna tell you his thoughts, says it like it is. And uh yeah, what a bunch of fun that was sitting down talking to that guy, you know, just uh, all his years of experience. And the great thing about Brian, I've and I've seen this in a bunch of different interviews he's done over the years, is that he will give you an honest answer. When you ask him a question, here's his honest answer. He's not too concerned about the optics. It's more about what's the truth and here it is. And, uh, I've always respected that. Cause I think a lot of times, especially when you're watching something on television, um, Honesty and truth is not always there. So uh, I'm grateful that, uh, that we have the Brian Burks of the world to, uh, st- to still provide that for us. Anyway, that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. I hope you are staying in contact with family and friends and uh, you're taking care of yourself and you're also able to take care of others when you can. Thank you so much for the support of this podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Also, don't forget to give us a review if you could. It kind of just bumps us up a little bit and uh, more people know about it. It's growing every single week. And uh, again, I'm eternally grateful to every single person who's taken the time to listen to this. Some of you have listened to every single episode and um, I, I can't thank you enough for that support. I really, I really do appreciate it. Again, have a fantastic week. Next week, my guest is the first returning guest I've ever had on the podcast. My returning guest is Mr. Rory Scoville from Los Angeles, California. He's got a new series out on YouTube, and uh, we talk about that and about where the state of the world is right now and how we kind of navigate and get through it. So, yeah, come on back for that one next week with Rory. Anyway, have a fantastic week. Take care of yourselves, and uh, be good. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.